Good evening, everybody. Um, welcome tonight to this Power Lecture. Thanks for coming on down. I'm Mark Ledbury. I'm director of the Power Institute at the University of Sydney, and it's a great pleasure for me to present this lecture tonight, um, part of a series of talks by preeminent art historians and curators that we've lined up this semester. My first task, though, is, of course, to acknowledge the um, traditional owners of the land on which all of the University of Sydney campuses stand, especially the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. And it's also my uh, pleasure and, and, and duty to um, acknowledge that this um, lecture is made possible by generous support, um, not only from um, the Power Foundation, but also from the United States Study Center, and uh, has been made possible logistically by the extraordinary work of Meredith um, Hall and the Sydney Ideas team, and I want to thank them very much. I also want to um, both thank and remind everybody that this um, lecture is being recorded by the ABC for Sydney Ideas, um, and that will have a small practical um, uh, consequence, which is that when, uh, of course, you'll be bursting with questions at the end of the talk, and we would very much like you to make sure that you do not speak unless a microphone is very near your mouth. In other words, you'll see two mics down here. What, I, I don't want you to be shy in coming forward, but it would be great if you could, uh, it'll be, look like a couple of bus cues at the mic and uh, speak your question directly into those mics so that we can capture all the question and answer. Um, it's a real pleasure this evening to introduce our speaker, Professor Thomas Crowe the Rosalie Solow Professor of Modern Art and Associate Provost for the Arts at New York University. Tom has very much been part of the new buzz around the Institute of Fine Arts, um, his actual place of work up at the, um, on the Upper East Side, uh, sort of in an extraordinary privileged position for any art historian in close proximity to the Met and so much else. But he's, before he took up that post in New York, Tom was instrumental in shaping and guiding another vital inst institution for art history as director of the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles. And before that, he was professor of, at Yale University, and before that, he taught at the universities of Sussex, of Michigan, and Princeton. And Tom is one of those rare scholars to have two fields in which he is equally distinguished in his contributions and active and innovative in his scholarship. He, as many of you will know, has authored two vastly influential studies of 18th century French painting, the groundbreaking Painters and Public Life in 18th Century Paris from 1985, and the very different but equally seminal emulation, Making Artists for Revolutionary France in 1995. The first of these books was massively influential on teaching. I don't know if there's a book list in, in uh, early modern art that it doesn't appear on and its recasting of 18th century art through the lens of the fractious, nebulous, but vital concept of public life and the public realm. His use of a range of neglected critical material, his subtle and fresh analyses of, of both art and the impact um, on art of the kinds of texts that surrounded it, and his re-evaluation, really, of the work of uh, Watteau, Greuze, and David made an immediate impact. The book won the Mitchell Prize and the College Art Association and also set that famous Yale University Press look. As Tom reminded me, that was really the first of the books that then became a sort of Yale standard. Following this up, emulation was anything but pub painters and public life part two. Instead, it was a sort of a very beautiful poetic meditation on the complex networks of emulation and friendship, filiation and loyalty that marked revolutionary art. As Tom himself put it, 
a history of missing fathers, of sons left fatherless, and the substitutes they sought. And it contained remarkable analyses of key paintings and subtle analyses of key um, affective bonds. But at the same time, other publications were appearing which demonstrated Tom's equally innovative and radical engagement with post-war art in the United States. His books, The Rise of the Sixties, American and European Art in the Era of Dissent, and Modern Art in the Common Culture, both published uh, in 96, were acknowledged as bringing to light new and unexpected connections and as decentering what seemed like well-known and sort of almost over-burdened over, um, narratives. In his later The Intelligence of Art in 1999, Tom turned to specific moments in art and art history to think through sort of both sort of an intense series of paintings, but also what art historians do with them. And his many other texts often focus on single artists, including Gordon Matter-Clark. He's written extensively on Robert Smithson. And he's just finished a manuscript on pop art, with which the material tonight has a lot to do. And this book is to be published by Yale University Press and is, of course, eagerly anticipated. And his, Tom's astonishing ability to combine an eye for archival detail, for salient anecdote, and for the telling relationship, and combine that with extended and finely wrought analysis of individual works, is really the hallmark of all he does in 18th as well as 20th century art. Tom once said to me that art history is basically one of the hardest disciplines to get right because of its many demands, uh, philosophical, historical, and visual. And I think Tom remains exemplary in his rise to that challenge. And without wanting to drift too much into anecdote, he has also inspired a generation of his students and uh, the scholars for whom he's looked after at the Getty by those demands that we not slip into lazy or glib art historical cliche, that we maintain standards and make the discipline what it can be. His artistry is always politically, culturally, and socially engaged, but it is also rigorous, rigorous demanding and revelatory. I personally owe a great deal to Tom. It's hard to put it into words, so I'm actually not going to. I'm going to stop talking now and allow him to start. The title of his talk tonight is The Death and Life of Pop Art in the 1960s Counterculture. Please welcome Thomas Crow. Mm -hmm. Gosh, um, Mark, I really would like to be that person that you've just described. Uh, and uh, I also hope that I, it's not too long before I can introduce you as well and, um, and uh, just point out what a, you know, what a great friend and colleague you've been over so many years and you know, how much I've learned from the work that we've done together and then the work you've you know, gone on to do so. Uh, brilliantly uh, in subsequent years. And I'm also, of course, very grateful to everyone who's helped me, you know, come the long way out here. Um, I, I mean, I love it here. I haven't been enough, and uh, it's a great opportunity just to be back in Australia. Uh, the United States Study Center, as well as the Power Institute and Power Foundation, um, uh, uh, definitely have my thanks and I'm you know really gratified to see so many of you coming out for the talk tonight um, for my beginning I'm going to seed the first two minutes or so to uh, well figures who exemplify the 60s 
uh, Jean-Luc Godard with Keith Richard and Mick Jagger by proxy. It is the evening of the day. I sit and watch the children play. Smiling faces I can see, but not for me. I sit and watch as tears go by. My riches can't buy everything. I want to hear the children sing. All I hear is the sound of rain falling on the ground. I sit and watch. As tears go by, it is the evening of the day. I sit and watch the children play, doing things I used to do. They think on you. I sit and watch as tears go by. Tenez, voici l'adresse que vous m'avez demandé. Merci. Well, in this short but indelible sequence. to put the slideshow up. <laughs> um, this is a PC, which leaves me, there we go. There we go, perfect. The English singer, Marianne Faithful, one of the pop faces of 1967, turns up unexpectedly in Jean-Luc Godard's Made in USA, his mock thriller featuring his stock company of actors, Anna Karina, Laszlo Zabo, Jean-Pierre Léo, positioned around the premises, casting meaningful glances at one another, as faithful, shakily warbles the Keith Richard Mick Jagger ballad as tears go by a huge international hit for her two years before the making of the film. By this date, Godard and virtually all the French intelligentsia had become stridently opposed to American influence. Uh, the capitalist hegemony that they saw behind the war in Vietnam 
But Made in USA was just the latest in a series of Godard films that exploited the devices of an Americanized pop idiom in painting as well as music and advertising, using the flattened, unhurried silhouettes in bright primary palette, starting back in 1963 for his film Contempt, Le Mépris. The designer of the poster for the Polish version of the film captures perfectly the Andy Warholian visual style that he had inaugurated in that film, an approach that Godard would intensify over a number of films culminating in Made in USA, where the mesmerizing visage of the director's estranged muse, Anna Karina, hovers for long takes in close-up against backgrounds of saturated color when they're not being intercut with mute walls of cartoon graphics, pasted advertisements, and graffiti. Early in that same year of 1967, the Paris art critic Alain Jouffroy had joined in the founding of a new periodical called Opus International and took to the pages of its only its second issue to celebrate Godard under the master rubric, The Eye of Truth, Oe Verité. It was not enough, declared Jouffroy, to call his subject a filmmaker. Godard was that, yes, but equally a writer and a painter. Godard's capacity perpetually to shift between these narrower identities had made him the quintessential French intellectual and creative figure. And I'm quoting Jouffroy, precisely because he is never a better director than when he takes up literature, never a better writer than when he's a filmmaker, never a better sociologist than when he's a painter. And Jouffroy hails Godard's last trio of films in particular, which began with Made in USA, was, was followed by Two or Three Things I Know About Her and then La Chinoise, all released in 1967. This trilogy, in Jouffroy's eyes, turned an essential and unparalleled optic on the dilemmas of a post-war generation, caught between, on one side, the rightist hegemony of Gaulism, and on the other, the double American onslaught of consumerism and military aggression in the former French Indochina. Now, Andy Warhol's 1963 series, which was informally titled Death in America, had been shown to considerable acclaim in Paris, even before the works had ever been seen in New York. In fact, uh, there was fear on the part of galleries to show this work at the time that it was first completed. And the art director of Opus, the Polish designer, Roman Czeslewicz, sought to provide visual accompaniment in an appropriate vein of Warholian pop. This is the part of the title page of Jouffroy's cover piece, 
a matter to settle with the whole world. And Cheslevich arranged a vertical stack of four identical images, an opaque male profile, literally and figuratively noir, extending one hand to touch, almost caress, a large 35 millimeter film camera, the man and the cinematic apparatus as one. The opacity of the image, rendered in what designers call line dropout, derives from a high contrast reduction of the original photograph to an unrelieved pattern of black ink on the page. And this transformation accomplishes, for the purposes of printing, a simplification cognate to Warhol's photomechanical silkscreens from which he made his paintings. While Warhol's method, as you see here in one of his electric chair uh, uh, compositions, preserves some total tonal gradations, their effect was to diminish spatial cues in favor of a flat open work pattern, a self-contained imprint of black over whatever color he selected as a background. In Warhol's examples, the infinitesimal gradations present even in crude grainy photography gave way to a new entity, a discrete and easily memorable emblem in black pigment which could be theoretically printed ad infinitum. Cheslevich adopted the emblematic convention in its stark form, doubling the Warholian effect by dint of its repetition and further exploiting his model's built-in likeness to a succession of film frames. For the issue's cover, which I've been saving, Cheslevich turned the prototype around and deployed line dropout decidedly against the grain of Jouffroy's solemnly portentous uh, praise for the director. He rendered Godard's profile in flamboyant splashes of white against black with the director's oeil verité taking the form of an applied plastic button inside of which a bright blue holographic wheel spins with every movement or every change in point of view. Rendering the visionary by a carnival novelty effect allies Cheslevich's graphic statement with a decidedly pop impulse, not just via the Warhol homage, but also via the intervening transmutation of pop devices through the San Francisco rock poster aesthetic in particular. It's difficult to look at the Godard cover image uh, and not recall the 1966 Avalon Ballroom poster by Victor Moscoso, an artist who had in fact trained at Yale under the master of color, Joseph Albers. The 19th century image of the smoking Californian Yaki Indian in top hat had been traded around among designers as a shamanic hippie icon for a number of years. Here, Moscoso's contribution to what was called the chief genre 
lay in the grid of spinning op art pinwheels in complementary hue, near complementary hues, which organize the whole composition and settle most startlingly in the face, in the eyes of the figure, whose photographic presence gains a large extra measure of strength by being consolidated into a solidly Warhol-like mass of black ink against cerulean blue. Now, to bring in San Francisco psychedelia, the graphic style that erupted there to advertise the dance concerts, not only at the Avalon, but at the first Fillmore Auditorium, is to introduce the third term required in any discussion of popular versus elite culture since the 1960s, namely the arrival of the counterculture. Yet most discussion of the subject carries on as if the counterculture had never scrambled this division. What Godard knew is what the late Los Angeles artist Mike Kelly observed in saying, quote, one of the most interesting things about the late 1960s is that the historical avant-gardes were picked up and inserted into popular culture under the guise of radical youth culture, end quote. And no fine art tendency was affected more thoroughly and directly by this phenomenon than was pop art, which had been sailing closest to the wind of mass culture in any event. Warhol himself gamely went along with the gag in 1969 when Esquire magazine decided to pronounce that pop art was indeed over. Well, it was over in a sense. And we could explore tonight any of several distinct avenues by which pop seemed to disappear as a vital and distinct movement in fine art by virtue of its absorption into Mike Kelly's radical youth culture. Godard's example demonstrates the process at work in film or in advertising, underscoring the fact that most pop artists had, uh, had considered film or advertising to be passive subjects that would simply stay still while they transform them, as if those pursuits were not, in fact, in the hands of very sophisticated and aware practitioners who could easily see what the pop artists were doing and turn the tables, transpose those innovations into their own, you know, next step ahead of what had seemed to be then a rather staid and static and even backward-looking conception of the popular realm being fostered by fine art, turning pop art to, that is to say, designers, directors, turning pop art to their own purposes. The Moscoso poster points to popular music as another such avenue, and here the Beatles and the Who would figure very largely. And I've talked about both of these uh, phenomena 
in previous work, but tonight I want to address the radical part of Kelly's pronouncement on radical youth culture with something that I've never had a chance to present before. When the, this new journal, Opus International, uh, which had at its purpose to bring French intellectuals into the current of the international counterculture. When Opus published its third issue in October 1967, its cover featured another dominating portrait head of a charismatic public figure with missing eyes. This is also by Roman Czeslewicz, and in his rendering of the likeness of Ernesto Che Guevara, he inflected the line dropout technique of the Godard cover closer to an Art Nouveau cloisonné, something by this time very much associated with San Francisco designers, while the red and magenta color scheme, I can't help but feel, is much closer to John Van Hammersfeld's sunset-saturated poster for the 1966 surfing film, The Endless Summer. The subtropical glow of Van Hammersfeld's design, which followed and occasionally preceded the international success of Bruce Brown's surfing travelogue, could apply equally to a Cuban backdrop for Czeslewicz's Che C design as did its festive overtones. Though the Opus Che cover appeared in October, which was the month of Guevara's capture and judicial murder in Bolivia, the issue of the magazine had been designed and printed before the revelation of those events. And the exuberance of its graphics followed from the experience of several of the magazine's principals in an extended and indeed highly festive sojourn in Havana during the previous summer. The occasion had been a restaging in the Cuban capital of the annual Parisian Salon de May exhibition, an institution that traced its origins to an undertaking in 1943 by dissident French artists and critics to assert the resilience of modernist experimentation in the face of German occupation. But what made this summertime Salon, Salon de Mayo more than the usual sort of cultural diplomacy had been the participation of a contingent of European artists who arrived early to, expense, to spend six weeks working in Cuba, their output intended to remain in the country alongside efforts by their Cuban counterparts as the core of a new modern art museum for the revolutionary nation. And what you've been seeing for the last minute or so is a, a montage page from Opus International uh, drawing together, you know, aspects, sites of this uh, summer sojourn by the French in Cuba. The most public manifestation of the arrival of these artists 
had been the making of a collective mural, which you see here, uh, some two stories high, the inset black and white photograph uh, in the lower right-hand corner gives you uh, a sense of the scale of the thing, which was done in over three days in public, which with every artist painting his contribution to the total painted montage in you know, the presence of a, uh, an audience of Cuban onlookers. The memories of the several dozen Europeans who had descended on Havana were likely to be extremely positive, not just because of the art, but there was the summer sun, the sea, the endless music, the dancing, the rum, the cigars, the first-class hotel rooms, all provided by Castro's ministry. Now, Roman Czeslovic did not make the trip, but his colleague, Alain Jouffroy, Again, the same, uh, the same voice we had heard uh, praising Godard to the skies, uh, became the leading reporter of the Salon de Mayo events, extolling in particular the impact of the ultra-poetic posters of Che and of Simon Bolivar that hung everywhere in the street first harbingers of a revolutionary culture that turns upside down the quite somber idea, and I'm quoting Jufra now, turned upside down the quite somber idea we have been able to form until now of art and the freedom of intellectuals in socialist countries. The ultra-poetic posters of Che and of Bolivar, that's his, you know, his takeaway from the experience in the streets of Havana. In the upper right of this slide is one such poster, which was also, in fact, published in that montage that I just showed you from Opus, where the face of Guevara, many times life-size, emblazons a wall over the slogan, create two, three, many Vietnams, Che. And then, as part and parcel of this French excursion to Cuba, more documentation arrived in August by a, a mainstream source, the popular pictorial weekly Paris Match, in an article by the free French veteran and war correspondent Jean Latargui on the South American Maquis operating in Bolivia under Guevara's leadership likening the clandestine Bolivian band to the hallowed name of the fighters of the French resistance. The opening spread of La Tegui's article featured beneath the subhead Che Guevara, where is he then? You see a, a Havana crowd scene in which a small poster bearing Guevara's portrait can be seen elevated above the heads of the throng. And on the opposite page is a full bleed reproduction of a cropped version of the photograph from which that poster was derived, as well as the one we were just looking at, as well as most of the others observed by Jouffroy and his friends. All based on a photograph captured in 1960 by Alberto Diaz Guitares called Corda. As Guevara was looking on while 
Jean-Paul Sartre and, uh, was um, observing the, uh, the rally uh, taking place um, in the Plaza de Revolucion. It was unposed, but had become so memorable and dense with connotation that it acquired its own nickname, El Guerriero Heroico. Now this is a, an image which had a delayed start in life. For the wider world, it remained in obscurity in Corda's studio in till close to the time it emerged to worldwide enduring fame in 1967. But the images published in both Paris Match and in Opus International document that it had already gone into wide circulation among Cuban designers and printers, a fact that dovetails with the need in the West at that moment for just such an iconic revolutionary surrogate. And Jouffre, once again, serves as a bellwether. In his extended essay in Opus called Che C, he leaves behind Godard's Oe Verite, or any French thinker, as a guide to the formation of a new left mission. Fidel and Che now fill the horizon. That pairing for him now replaces, in his words, a Breton plus a Sartre plus an Aragon plus a Foucault plus an Althusser. No more need. Fidel and Che will take their places. And Castro and his ministers made themselves highly available to the European visitors, like Jouffre, in ways that encourage their theory that a newly populist and unmediated stage of socialism was at work in Cuba. Against Anglo-American hegemony, Jouffre posited that a powerful latent bond was being forged between the southern tier of Latin Europe and the masses of Latin America. Incessant repetition of Che as an image followed from the absence since 1965 of the man himself, who had been out of Cuba on various sort of catalyzing revolutionary undertakings since that year. He'd first made his way with a guerrilla band to the alien terrain of the Congo, where he failed to gain any traction famously shifting his efforts and his theory of revolution to the highlands of Bolivia, he sought by direct action to catalyze a popular revolt spreading outward from the Andean Altiplano to reach all of South America. The Europeans, then being so pleasurably entertained in Havana, had no inkling of the distress and deprivation that the beleaguered object of their adulation was enduring at the very same moment. The ultra-poetic posters noted by Jouffre were all that one could perceive of El Che, the unseen and legendary figure that the asthmatic Argentinian Dr. Devera had become. 
at the closing ceremony for the grand conference of socialist parties in Cuba that uh, Castro had organized for the very same weeks that the French visitors were present, uh, a colossal photographic rendering of Guevara's face in black and white provided the backdrop for Castro's remarks. Among other meanings, it carried a message of independent revolutionary fervor directed to the observers from the Soviet bloc. As one looked out from the rostrum, Che appeared again, and this great poster says, the duty of every revolutionary is to make revolution, that being the message that the uh, that the uh, Eastern Europeans were meant to absorb. Looking in the other direction, Che appeared again in that same Muchos Vietnam billboard sized poster reproduced in Opus that we were just looking at. These color photographs were all taken by Lee Lockwood, uh, staff photographer for the American mass market magazine Look, who had sent a correspondent to the event capturing the giant backdrop version in standard social realist style, blown up from an unremarkable three-quarter photograph. And much the same can be said of Castro's equally colossal portrait in color presented in conventionally chiseled aspect like an Italian movie star on one of the billboard murals that formed a ring around the throng of spectators in the Plaza de la Revolución. The likeness of Guevara, it hardly needs stating, transforms the 1960 Corda photograph into a contrastingly unified heraldic motif in one plane and one color set against what appears to be a roughly applied, dramatically unfinished coat of red. Jufoy was extolling Fidel and Che together as twin avatars of a revolutionary future, but the physical absence of Che made his artistic representation both more urgent and more powerfully inventive in graphic terms. And that visual message plainly got back to Roman Czeslovich, who at first turned it away from the aggressively stark character of the Cuban template. The opus cover emblazoned the global affirmation Che C across the visage in such a way that the message in heavy serif type becomes the portrait's facial features the chevron-like French quotation marks lending the charm of crow's feet to the implied distant gaze. Without the knowledge that would shortly come to light in the wake of Guevara's death on October 9th of 1967, it was still possible to maintain the high spirits of Czeslovich's cover which was soon widely circulated as a poster as well. And as a frontispiece to Jouffroy's uh, hagiographic essay, the designer created a grid of 35 identical high contrast renditions of Guevara 
caught on camera in an altogether different mood and aspect, relaxed, laughing, heavily bearded, broad-brimmed hat at this jaunty angle. Another designer based in Paris, less well-positioned than Czeslovich, was the young Irishman Jim Fitzpatrick, who responded in similar spirit to a commission from an Irish magazine called Scene by uh, adapting the quarter portrait into a line illustration fully in the mode of San Francisco psychedelia. This is how Fitzpatrick has described its genesis, quoting, the editor commissioned me to do a quite radical series called A Voice in Our Times relating to the Vietnam War. It was very satirical and I used people's own words against them. Then I decided I wanted to be a bit more radical and I did the Che Guevara image. Initially I was working in a very Art Nouveau-ish style like Beardsley and the first image I did of Che was psychedelic. It looks like he's in seaweed, end of quote. And his conception provides something, you could say, uh, of a compendium of the fluid Art Nouveau devices that had been revived in the work of the San Francisco poster designers as a visual correlative to the sensory freedom and release promised by the music and the light shows and the drugs of the ballroom experience and more generally by the hippie end of the countercultural spectrum. Despite this softening, says Fitzpatrick, though, the very subject of Guevara was too radical, even for a leftist publication, and his design never ran. A fortunate outcome, in light of the death of its subject within two months of the Corda icon, first being published outside of Cuba, for both Cubans and the itinerant Europeans, the work of finding symbolic surrogates for the slain leader had only to continue in the patterns established since the, the Guevara's disappearance from the public eye two years before. That is, only, it only had to continue in the patterns already established by Cuban designers. On hearing of Guevara's death, Corda's close friend, the artist and designer, Jose Gomez Fresquet, who went under the name of Freme, like uh, soccer players, Cuban designers seem to, or artists in general, seem to like going by one name. Anyway, Freme, uh, the moment he heard the news, set to work through the night on a commemorative poster. Surmounting the legend, hasta la victoria siempre, that is, advance, hasten, always hasten victory, a kind of open-ended sense of what victory might mean. And this was the exhortation with which Fidel would close his eulogy for Che before a vast memorial rally. Fleme superimposed over a red field a dot screen transfer of the Corda portrait, intentionally faint, so as, in, in, in Fleme's own words, to disappear and reappear within the spectator's field of awareness, 
like an alternation of rational acceptance and emotional denial over Guevara's demise. And even more patently Warholian is the poster produced shortly afterward by Nico, full name Antonio Perez Gonzalez. This also dates to the month of October 67 with black screen transfers of the Guerrero Heroico repeated in varying sizes. The same visage seeming to move forward and back in space against a ground colored like smoldering embers, all arranged according to an underlying rectilinear grid. The scheme reinforced by the artfully asymmetric placement of that same slogan in black sans serif capitals across the cropped forehead of the largest, most spatially advanced among the six corda visages. One man becomes a phalanx advancing toward the limitless future invoked in the text. So the question, I think, becomes why such solemn and deeply emotional commemoration of the slain Guevara should call for visual correlatives from the repertoire of international pop art. I think it's first important to recall that Cuban designers before 1959 joined in the same currents of communication, as did Warhol and his colleagues in New York. All were occupied in assimilating modernist simplicity in layout and topography with the insistent importance of photographic documentation as the up-to-date guarantee of truth-telling and veracity. It's the period in which photographic illustration is taking over from painted illustration in the both editorial and advertising pages of mass market magazines. As the medium of Guevara's prestige had become his fame rather than his physical presence, Warhol's version of the celebrity portrait, having become the most concise and memorable currency of renown would naturally have suggested itself. And it would also be sensible to credit the Cubans with the ability to recognize the elegiac qualities in so many of Warhol's defining motifs, beginning with the memorialization of Marilyn Monroe within weeks of her death in August of 1962. And what I'm showing you is the central tale of his large gold Marilyn with its celestial background. The frontal invariant and heraldic character of the device he fashioned from an old studio portrait of the actress recalled its subject as an imprint of memory and a sign of ultimate loss or absence. On the streets of Buenos Aires on Guevara's birthday, 
This stenciled graffito has been appearing regularly in recent years, making the point more succinctly in its visual synthesis than my words can do. The anonymous designer of this street art stencil calls on as specific an example of graphic art as he does, or she, of Warhol's pop Marilyn icon. In 1967, the same Jim Fitzpatrick responsible for the psychedelic Che responded to the news of Guevara's death with the black on red rendition of the Corda image that has since come to live indelibly and without diminution in the culture to this day. I could swear that not a week goes by that I don't see this image on a t-shirt or ball cap in the New York subway. At first encounter, it appears that um, Fitzpatrick has turned away from the psychedelic idiom he chose for the first Che toward the prototype of early 1960s Warhol in both the flat rendering of the Corda portrait and the simple color contrast of black emblem against the red field. But the stark contrast of the white facial illumination is already a marked departure from that model, or indeed from the Cuban parallels that preceded him. Um, as is Fitzpatrick, creating his separate screens in hand-cut acetate rather than by photographic transfer. The quasi-photographic component of the poster came only in its method of reproduction. Fitzpatrick requires the crude, uh, or sorry, describes the crude but effective photostatic device that he rigged up for the job of turning out these posters. He says he, quote, made a big paper negative. You put your image underneath it. I drew on acetate so the light could go through. You put a sheet of photographic paper on top of that closed it, turned on the light box, developed it in a developer, and fixed it in a fixer. It was very smelly and very messy, end quote. But still, having repeated the procedure for some thousand sheets, putting the yellow star in with magic marker, he distributed them for little or no remuneration, nor at the time any thought of copyright. Quoting again, I would love to say that it was well organized, but it was quite haphazard. Friends of mine going to the continent would get a batch. A lot of odd people ended up distributing the work. What I was trying to do in a way was to get people to notice that this man had been murdered. It was a big story at the time, but it faded away, end quote. Well, the undying currency and ubiquity of Fitzpatrick's invention that I was just trying to describe became exactly what he intended, the strongest antidote against that amnesia. 
far stronger over time than Guevara's Christ-like deathbed photograph or the publication of his smuggled Bolivian diary or any other souvenir. It endures regularly posited as the most reproduced image in history. And I think its formal qualities have something to do with that endurance. Drawing and cutting by hand allowed Fitzpatrick to retain a measure of the a nouveau vitality that had dominated his earlier version, manifested uh, in the postmortem poster as an enlivening play of flames and tendrils at the margins of the black portrait pattern. Underestimated, but I think key to Fitzpatrick's success in galvanizing a late 1960s audience. Nor was he the only artist in Paris cognizant of the power of contour in a mode of pop figuration reduced to planar separations. This is a painting, acrylic on canvas, also from 1967, by the artist Bernard Ronciac, who had been among the French participants at the Havana Salon de Mayo, contributing a canvas titled simply Fidel, manually adapted from a photograph capturing the Cuban leader among a cluster of campesinos, much like the one we saw earlier that had appeared in Opus. Amid Ronciac's interlocking planes of flat acrylic pigment, Castro retreats to the background, but stands out from the stolid backs of the onlookers, not only by his illuminated profile, but even more by the filigreed outline of his beard and brick red against the pale yellow ground. The partial occlude, the recession, the partial occlusion of the figure combined with the special illumination and that crackling, a uh, nervous contour of the beard visually tracks Jouffroy's praise of Castro's unaffected rapport with the Cuban populace, the French seeing exactly what they wanted to see and were meant to see. A celebration that exactly echoed the regime's own justifications for its radical experiment inaugurated in 1966. As Jouffroy had put it, quote, an entire people linked by the incessant dialogue it enjoys with Fidel, with no concrete problem too small to be considered by his prodigious speeches, both inspired and frank, and by his continual encounters with peasants, workers, and students, where he learns everything and responds to everything, end quote. Well, you know, we can... Um, with hindsight, uh, easily uh, uh, undo the fervor behind Jufra's words, but one credit we need to give to them is that such a vision of an unmediated revolutionary process, one uniting students with labor, one free of subservience either to a vanguard party or to bourgeois institutions, one aiming at an emancipation of both the senses and the imagination, all those things were to galvanize the Parisian insurrections that began on the 2nd of May, 1968. 
the giddy utopianism voiced by Jouffre in his reports from Havana built on his early encomia for Godard to forecast the rhetoric and the hopes adopted by the student insurgents. The migration of so many leftist writers and artists to Havana over the previous summer, I think played an underestimated part in the gathering of forces behind the famous May events. Passage via Cuba also bringing to the Parisian artistic milieu powerful examples of the pop visual sensibility being put to use on a massive public scale. In addition to that glimpse of the Che billboard that we saw, the Opus team returned with a photograph of an ordinary Havana street scene where an enormous mural appears emblazoned above the passing bus with four repeated images. A running American infantryman progressively tipped backward with each iteration, one enveloped in what appears as a spreading stain of blood. The technique was the same photographically derived line dropout silhouette we've been seeing everywhere. Um, and in a band across the waist of the figures runs the slogan in lowercase italic, the question before all peoples is this, to capitulate to imperialism or to resist and to struggle. The height of the mural, as I think you can see easily, covered at least two stories of the building to which it was attached, but was built from separate sheets of buckling paper, each segment only about a meter on a side. That combination of topical ephemerality combined with striking monumentality cannot have failed to impress the artists on hand for the Salon de Mayo. Ronciac, along with two other Havana veterans, Gilles Ayo and Eduardo Arroyo, joined the student occupiers at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in setting up the poster workshop that famously came to function under the anonymous name, the Atelier Populaire. Remembered as that collective of students from the elite Beaux-Arts on the left bank who transformed their studios into a factory. The Warhol reference is an apt one for the daily production of public posters. Here is a photograph unpopulated but uh, and with all the customary canvases stored away out of reach while the day's crop of drying posters uh, hang pinned to clotheslines strung through the space. The most legible of them declares vivre et non survivre, live and not just survive. One of the many such protests against what the students regarded as the deadening bureaucratic expediency imposed upon them by university structures when designed to prepare them for a future as no more than obedient consumers and cogs in a capitalist machine. Now the communal ethos for which the Atelier Populaire has become so famous did not establish itself instantly, but soon enough its firm policy of authorial anonymity and denial of ownership had settled into place. Individual ownership of the posters was even more um, unfeasible because once they had been fly posted on any suitable surface, they could not in any event be removed 
without destroying the work in the process. Uh, a corollary to this surrender of property rights over all designs, each one of which needed the approval of the group before distribution, has been the assumption that the atelier was a spontaneous enterprise of the students uh, after they had begun their occupation. But there had been a strong genealogy in Paris already of just such suspicion among artists of individual creativity as a marketable value. And all the professional artists, Ronciac, Ayot, Arroyo, who joined the student occupation, had been active in promoting exactly this line of thought under a pop-style banner. They readily embraced the ethics of anti-individualism, but they brought to the enterprise their prior experience, some of it crucially gained in Havana, with revolutionary graphic, graphic communication as potentially a pervasive feature of the urban environment. Having seen the ultra-poetic street art of the Cuban capital, these veterans of the Salon de Mayo were, were um, ready to undertake their own equivalent. Now they may, because of that experience, have been unimpressed by Jim Fitzpatrick's reinvention of the Corda Che emblem, which Cuban designers had already rendered on a monumental scale. But they cannot have been blind to the wide and passionate embrace of Fitzpatrick's Viva Che as a virally multiplying banner of revolutionary enthusiasm. The Fitzpatrick poster was not on this wall. I have uh, retroactively placed it among typical uh, monochrome uh, uh, renditions of the, uh, of the Atelier Populaire's output. Few, if any, European countenances could boast the same intrinsic charisma as El Che in any of his graphic transformations. But the Paris Rebellion found its portrait icon in a press photograph of the most prominent sing single face of the rebellion. The German national Daniel Cohn-Bondy, who had stepped to the fore as the student movement built to critical mass at the new suburban University of Nanterre. French born of German Jewish refugee parents, Cohn-Bondy had been attacked in the right-wing press and by Gaullist authorities for both his nationality and his ethnicity. Forced to retreat from Paris as early as the 10th of May, only eight days into the rebellion, he waited ineffectually at a distance as the authorities set about withdrawing his visa and eventually deporting him back to Germany on the 22nd of the month. So much of the uprising took place without his presence. But not before Ronciac, the night before Combondi's exile, transformed his smiling, ecstatic visage according to the newly pop-inflected protocols of revolutionary visibility. The accompanying slogan, we are all Jews and Germans, turned the ready-made invectives of the old French right into a proclamation of youthful solidarity, 
a chant duly taken up by the crowd thronging the march to protest Combondi's deportation, where Ronciac saw his image being brandished on placards, already multiplying beyond his prior knowledge or control. Now, when he was doing a painting like the Fidel we saw earlier, Rossiak's ambitions for a post-Havana version of pop had come up against the limits inherent to the unique gallery-bound object. The insurrections of May and the coming together of the Atelier Populaire put into the hands of artists a scale of operation, a mode of address, and an audience that seemed commensurable to the one afforded their Cuban counterparts. Much as Che had attracted the lion's share of representation by virtue of his simultaneous salience and absence, so it would be with Combondi. That equation between the departed and the emblematic pop totem had been put into place by Warhol from, as I was noting before, his reiterations of the Marilyn Monroe portrait to the elegiac mourning portraits of Jacqueline Kennedy from November 1963. By the time of Guevara's death, four years later, the prototype had spun entirely outside of the art world to become a visual lingua franca for the new left and for third world movements. The preferred stylistic signifier for the missing for the jailed, for the exiled, and for the murdered. This is, in fact, a Cuban tribute to the American New Left figure and philosopher Angela Davis. To the extent that the Warholian prototype made reference to the smudged handbill, the broadside, or the wanted poster, it had come full circle in that respect as well. Henceforth, any fine artist returning to the device would need, in honesty, to confront the ungovernably popular and politicized valences it had acquired on its transformative passage via Havana and Paris. And virtually, nobody could. No fine artist found a way to take that on, leaving the markers of pop depleted and left behind in their fine art incarnations. But on the other hand, without the crucible of pop art, the visual language of defiance, paradoxical in light of pop's reputation for acceptance and passivity, would never have come to the fore, would never have been born. So thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> grab this mic for a second. We're going to put the lights up in, so that I can see whose hands are up. Um, that was a very moving and uh, I think incredibly fresh uh, set of circumstances to put together. I just want to um, uh, see whether there are comments or questions. Um, please don't be shy, uh, but please approach that mic that is there or the one on the other side.
So no one has ever owned a Che Guevara poster in this entire room then. Um, <laughs> yes, let's start, thank you. Thank you. I was just wondering, what is it about the pop visual image that works so well with politics, that works so well to convey political messages, in your opinion, if there is one? Yeah, I, I, you know, been trying to work that in as a as a latent thread in the largely descriptive character of the lecture. But I think it uh, to answer that question is also to answer why does Andy Warhol's art from the 1960s never seem old, whereas his pop contemporaries now seem to be very much, you know, figures of that period and something from the past. Warhol's images um, born out of, you know, the same, the same milieu, the same moment, um, seem to be reinvented and rediscovered by every generation that comes along. And I think there has to be something inherent in the visual vocabulary that allows for people to embrace them, to feel that they can identify and possess those images rather than being sort of put off at a distance as most you know, famous pop paintings otherwise tend to do. And I think it comes from actually something very deep and rather ancient in people's responses to art that people are looking for something that has that emblematic, I think I called it heraldic, which means it's a symbol that represents you, that stands for something, that goes before you. And uh, Warhol's particular genius, how much of it was premeditated, how much of it was just simply discovered along the way, um, generates potent presences, identities, in a um, uh, highly memorable, highly reproducible, flat, unified emblem. And that gives them, I think, their, um, you know, their, their, their perpetual availability to people. They can be held in mind more so than almost any other comparable kind of art. And I think when the Cuban designers, like Nico and Freme, were basically channeling Warhol, I, I think that's very difficult to deny on visual terms at this moment of high emotion and mourning that was taking place in Cuba at that moment, I think is another you know, validation, really, for that reading of what Warhol had discovered. It was, you know, it, it, it was a, uh, uh, it was iconic in, you know, the strictest sense and not the loose way that we use that now for just about everything. Um, it was strictly speaking iconic and therefore, you know, very suitable for, uh, for moments of commemoration, memory, perpetuation, identification that the, the icon in strict terms uh, serves or functions uh, as a surrogate for people's, uh, you know, deep, deepest affiliations.
Thank you, Professor Crow. Um, I was wondering whether you can comment on um, any predecessors to the 1960s period you were describing. Uh, this bold simplicity that seemed so enchanting is surely not new. Surely it's been used in political posters um, much earlier, 40 years earlier in, in Russia or yeah, I think, I think, you know, the high contrast silhouette was not invented by these artists, um, you know, nor, you know, was Warhol to first to use its potential for these starkly memorable surrogates for people and events. But I think something, and, and it goes back to, I think, to, to one of the points I raised early in the talk, the arrival of uh, you know an international counterculture in which politics were mixed with other kinds of, of, of ideas about liberation or emancipation, that these were not expressions of a kind of party program, not something that was being you know directed toward the audience in a in, a, in an agitprop mode. I mean, yes, of course, that's what Castro wanted to do with those big billboards and, and street posters. But there was something about the vocabulary having already passed through the crucible of, of pop celebrity. It inevitably carried those associations, which would of course, I think, been very much anathema or at cross purposes to the earlier sorts of revolutionary graphics to which you're referring. Um, then you had the people on one side and you had a despised, you know, elite or high culture on the other. Now the counterculture mixes the two, a highly educated post-war youth cohort with expansion of the universities, expansion of the studies of things like art history so people knew the precedents and could apply them freely as a, as a uh, a gesture of historical affiliation, but nothing that was being controlled from a central source. So even when the Cuban designers are being told to do what they're doing, they're uh, using a language which is already uh, carrying connotations outside of the old vanguard party ethic. And I think the posters that Nico and Freyme did were very much in the spirit of, of personal expression, even though they then were meant to have a kind of public salience. Professor Crow, thanks for a beautiful paper. I love the way it circled around. Um, Thank you. You've left um, yourself entirely out of the uh, out of the picture, and I wonder if you'd say a few words about your own affiliation, a gentleman of a certain age. Um, <laughs> you were. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> Uh, what was your connection with this? You know, where were you in 1967, and how has it, uh, um, you know, formed your thinking or reflection about these questions? Well, you know, one thing I can say, 
and this was entirely by accident. I was really the most naive uh, American college, you know, third year student on my semester abroad in France in the spring of 1968. And we had been down in the south in Montpellier dutifully going to our classes and our language lessons and everything. But on the 1st of May, we were released. And of course, we all made a beeline for Paris. We, you know, we arrived at the Gare Lyon. We went right down the, the left bank and found little hotels to stay in right in the middle of the Latin Quarter. And the next day, you know, the whole thing blew up all right around where we were. I could, we could lean out of the window in this hotel I was sharing with, room that I was sharing with a friend of mine on the Rue Monsieur le Prince, where we looked up at the Odeon Theater. And the Odeon was one of the first um, cultural buildings to be occupied with the red and black flags flying from the balustrade at the top. And, uh, you know, the, the, the national sort of stormtrooperish CRS was already on the streets. There were the big, you know, Black Mariah paddy wagons everywhere. The whole thing was building up to that next weekend when the, when the real barricades went up, you know, uh, like at the intersection of, of Boumiche and the, and the Rue Gay Lussac, that then precipitated the whole, you know, uh, uh, onslaught. You know, of, but you know, I really had to. I have to say, I was studying politics and stuff at the time, but I really didn't know what this was all about, other than that it was just occurring everywhere. And and you know, I even took a few bruises trying to get around a corner. You know, uh, next to a line of CRS. Um, you know, nothing that you know, had to you know see treatment for or anything, but it was still pretty alarming and and. I think, you know, how could that not leave an imprint? You would go home trying to think about what was occurring. And I think after that, um, uh, in my last year in college, you know, I was probably thinking, this was back in Los Angeles, I was thinking about things differently. Uh, you know, there, the, the, the kind of hippie end of the counterculture was much more, the more powerful of the two, though we... We sat in our anti-war vigils and marches and so on, which I just took for granted that that's what you do. But I can't say that I was ever a, you know, a leader or you know, a, a, any kind of uh, you know, uh, distinctive presence in that. But everything in the making of art, you know, and in a way, I you know, I did get the idea that there was something about a kind of pop style in art that went along with this. Uh, even in the work of, say, an artist like Ed Richet, who is not in any way personally uh, known for this sort of affiliation, but I thought that that sort of cool eye on consumer culture, you know, was part and parcel of something of the same sensibility. I was, you know, trying, you know, starting to understand from the French experience that I'd had. So I could say more, but that's the, probably the good part. If you have a hand up at the back, you'll have to hold it up high so I can see. Yes, please come to the mic. Hello, and thank you. Hi. 
Um, I was really interested in this contradiction that you identify um, that seems to lie between the very uh, collaborative, um, uh, non-individualistic or anti-individualistic nature of counterculture, and then the way that the um, appropriation of Warhol's style produces an image that is very easily uh, able to be appropriated by the individual. So it's, a very, it's very easy to have a very personal response to an image of Che that has been filtered through these lens, this, mm -hmm. the lens of pop art. So that, that's really interesting that there's this counterculture that is promoting an anti-individualist anti and, and collaborative um, approach which denies authorship of particular images and presents an imagery that is designed to galvanize people, you know, mm -hmm. to be, become revolutionaries. So, I mean, that's a very kind of complex lead up to the question that I wanted to ask you, which is, do you think that the Che image is, has been politically successful? I mean, it obviously is one of the most successful um, images of all time, you know, you know, mm -hmm. it works so well as an image, but does it have any, does it, has it done anything politically? Yeah, well, you know, that's always a hard question about the political efficacy of, you know, symbolic inventions. I mean, I like the lead up to your question. I thought it summarized what I was trying to say extremely well. Uh, and my sense about efficacy is um, not quite so utilitarian. I think it would be very hard to, you know, identify or measure actual, you know, specific outcomes, something happened that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Because we're really operating on the terrain of the imagination. And uh, I think Fitzpatrick said it very well. When he made the image, he felt that the story of how, you know, he had been um, tracked down and murdered um, was already fading. You know, you know, things were so momentous in that period that it could have been just one thing among many. You know, the war in Vietnam was raging. There was an outrage every hour. There was a new image every hour. So, uh, you know, the court of photograph is, especially in its cropped form, that, that is habitually used as a, as a template by designers, is immensely, you know, compressed and resonant in the way that I was trying to describe in general about that the sort of emblematic, iconic mode. But I think Fitzpatrick did something to it that... Um, uh, made it carry so that, you know, the, the, the whole saga of Cuba as, as conveyed by someone like Alain Jouffroy, we, we know very well that was not what was going on and that, uh, you know, the authoritarianism of the regime was already consolidating itself. Um, the idea that this was built on the spontaneous participation of the masses and so on was, a, you know, a useful fiction of the period. I mean, useful in the sense that translated away from a Communist Party, Soviet-allied context, it could turn into something else. 
And the Guevara image is just one concentrated instance of a style starting to have, uh, you know, a, uh, a usefulness as a, as a marker or connotation of simply questioning everything and thinking about how you might rally yourself against, you know, against deadening routine, against, uh, you know, the forces of, that, that, that kill the imagination, indeed. And its simplicity, in fact, then grows into something which is, you know, it's kind of infinitely complex. And I wonder, you know, what these kids on the subway, why they have that image. But it's not, it's, it would be very easy, it would be this kind of standard journalistic thing to just uh, condescend to it and dismiss it and say that it's just empty. I can't exactly say why it's not empty, but I don't think that it is. And, um, and so for an historian to go back and kind of figure out how that started seemed to me an interesting thing to do. Just um, picking up on the, the, the idea that the usefulness of that, the usefulness as a star, could you um, maybe elaborate on the final, your final comments, which seem to suggest that in the studio, in the Everwine studio, it was kind of like an opportunity missed or, or something not fully taken cognizance of the act, the, um, the, the generative force of, of that, what had passed in Cuba and Paris. So you say, sorry, I just could you elaborate on the, the spec, your, your final comments of your paper? That about pop art being, in a way, a, a crucible for a visual language for the left in the 1960s uh, and for the counterculture, including even what might seem to be, um, you know, uh, digressions like uh, Art Nouveau or, you know, or, or things that seem to have a kind of a merely hedonistic kind of... Uh, uh, connotation. I mean, I think all those things are bound up with one another, and Jim Fitzpatrick rather navigates all of them on his way to that image, so that you know you can remember what it was like when people, at least a large number of people, seemed to feel that. Uh, well, you know, what can I say that you know events like the Wall Street bailout, you know, would not be in our future. There would be some other way of relating and organizing life. You know, it doesn't now seem to have been in the power for even the most um, uh, sort of massive coming together of a, of a dissenting or contrary point of view to really deflect a, you know, the, the growth of a, of a hierarchical and increasingly, you know, uh, antisocial sort of general ethos. Um, but if you can still remember it, I guess is what I'm saying. I hope this is an answer to your question. I was actually more thinking of the, um, the, avant the avant-garde studio that had seemed to have oh, moved on to elsewhere. The actual, uh, maybe a... It's oh, I see what like you mean. Yeah, I, you know, the, um, pop... If I understand what you're saying, yes, pop comes back. Pop comes back, but it can, but it, it's kind of the tendency that 
dare not speak its name. So it gets called different things to make it seem more respectable and more elevated, like appropriation or a, a simulation. Uh, it, you know, it goes back into the galleries. But I've got a sort of follow-up to this, which if anybody is going to be in Brisbane next week, you could come and hear, uh, where a lot of this kind of very rarefied neoconceptual sort of work, which has been really dominant since around 1980, partly had its origins in experiments with art in a very, you know, communal, non-hierarchical setting in New York. A, uh, a group called CoLab that uh, Jenny Holzer, for one, was part of. They did um, a kind of hit and run exhibition called the Times Square Show that kind of, kind of brought the, the sort of seedy poverty of, of New York in the later 1970s, which is really kind of hard to remember now, um, into the, the, the view of art. But, you know, that side of, of the revival of you know, appropriated uh, colloquial or vernacular imagery kind of got lost in, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of eager embrace of these experiments by the, you know, uh, burgeoning channels of, of international fine art, which was revivified by having all this new material injected into it. So it's a cycle. I've written about that cycle way back in, in, in my early career. But I don't, I, I never want it to mean like, you know, nothing new under the sun, always, you know, it gets co-opted, you know, always recuperated. But the moments are what matter. And the moments do leave something that people later on can pick up on and use. Thanks. I'm going to have to hurry our final question, I'm afraid, so that we can... My answers are too long, I'm sorry. Do you want to come to the mic? I was just interested in um, a comment on the casualties of appropriation through pop art. Uh, for example, as you would know, the, the man who designed the Brillo box was actually an, an aspiring abstract expressionist painter and was very left out of the picture when his Brillo design went into Warhol's exhibition. Yeah, I, I do know something a little about that whole story. And it's sad in many ways because this artist, I think late in the day, actually, I, I apologize, his name is escaping me, but um, he, he, uh, he died young. And his chance, in a way, to make good on you know, the opposition that he wanted to set up between his improvised and expressive mode of painting that he pursued, you know, from the heart and the job he had to do as a graphic designer, he never had a chance to overcome that opposition. Naturally, he was, he was just scathing about Warhol's appropriation of that design, but he was scathing about every pop artist, uh, about Lichtenstein, uh, among others. Uh, and he just could not see the potential that you know, the discoveries of advertising actually carried for artists who, you know, wanted to pretend that, uh, wanted to stop pretending, I mean to say, wanted to stop pretending 
that 95% of the population didn't matter. And it's not that you just succumb, you know, to the uh, devices of the ad man, but you observe the devices of the ad man. And, um, you know, refrain from transferring the contempt you might feel for the manipulations that advertising and celebrity culture, you know, carry out to those who accept those manipulations. And that's a move that's happening all too often, I think, in current art criticism, that, that uh, uh, suspicion and disdain for certain kinds of mass cultural you know, uh, uh, artifacts is transferred on to the people for whom those artifacts constitute the bulk of their cultural awareness. And that should not be done. Thank you. I'm, uh, I thank you all very much for your questions. I'm, I know there are many others who will have them, but I, we need to call a halt to mm -hmm. tonight's proceedings. And thank you all for coming, and especially thank Tom for his great talk. Thank you, well, thank you for your patience. And, and for all the really good questions, the fantastic questions. I'm really grateful.